I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Uh, My father was in his teens during what is now called the Great Depression. He was a great storyteller, and as such, the Depression greatly informed my life. My three siblings and I grew up in a comfortable suburb, and it seemed the government had learned the lessons of the economic calamity and that a solid middle class was secure. But always at the back of my mind was the question, can it happen again? Is it truly beyond the realm of possibility that there could be another depression leading to the rise of another far-right fascist dictator? Can it happen here, was the question which history demanded us to consider. Trump and his plutocratic backers seek to replace democracy with a dictatorship of religious nationalism, it seems to me. He seems enamored of the police state my father and I worried about. As we know, he calls the press the enemy of the people. And a second depression? With amazing speed, millions are now on bread lines, this time waiting hours in their cars for food that may or may not be there. According to one source, the true U.S. unemployment rate is estimated at 20% to 45%, possibly exceeding the Great Depression peak of 25% in 1933. I don't know what the accuracy is, but White House Senior Advisor Kevin Hassett told George Stephanopoulos, We're going to be looking at an unemployment rate that approaches rates I think we saw during the Great Depression. That's from the White House. All along, it's been evident that President Trump eagerly and exclusively serves the very wealthiest few. He seriously depleted the American Treasury with a tax cut for the richest in 2017 and spends rather wildly. Now, some have compared him to uh, Herbert Hoover when what we need is another Franklin Roosevelt. Now, that's not at all fair to Mr. Hoover, who was a well-meaning liberal. And people are starting to wonder if this is the start of Depression 2.0. As FDR's most famous quote advises, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And yes, there is a lot of novel fear in the America of 2020. Fear can and is often used to manipulate us. Tyrants throughout history have used fear very effectively to maintain power and control. No question America and the world, for that matter, have experienced a sharp shock, and tens of thousands are in fact dying from the novel coronavirus, and most of us are taking proper precautions. But what about the massive hit to the economy? Uh, Is there legitimate reason to fear Depression 2.0? Like many Americans, I've always assumed a president would surround himself with experts in various fields, like the so-called brain trust Franklin Roosevelt put together and relied on. Trump, of course, has no use for experts. He's a very stable genius and instead goes by his intuition. Today we have with us one of America's best and most esteemed historians of the Great Depression, David M. Kennedy. Thanks so much for being with us. Very happy to be with you, Bert. Though he has no crystal ball, Kennedy is one expert we can rely on. According to Kennedy, this is a sharp shock, but is not a depression. 
The professor of history at Stanford University says, I'm cautiously optimistic that the economic effects will be severe, but not nearly as long-lasting as the Great Depression. His book, Freedom from Fear, The American People in Depression and War, 1929 to 1945, won the Pulitzer Prize for History in 2000. And I will say have a large number of really good history books, mainly on the First World War. He's written one on that as well. And I will say that when it comes to understanding the Depression and the Second World War, Freedom from Fear is a standout, not just because it's over 800 pages. Uh, I hope you, dear listener, will stick with us for the hours. Professor Kennedy and I delve into what is similar, what is different, and the threat of a rising fascistic right, as did happen in the 30s. And for such a notable historian to say he's cautiously optimistic that it won't be as long or as bad as the Depression in the 30s is something to which we should pay attention. Unlike our president, Kennedy is informed by research and scholarship and not what his stable genius intuition tells him. (laughs) Today, I hope to discuss similarities and differences. Well, again, thanks for being with us. Conventional wisdom is, of course, that the stock market crash in 1929 instantly triggered the Great Depression. Like much conventional wisdom, it's wrong. Today's new massive unemployment was stunningly quick, and the trigger was the sudden onset of coronavirus. But one thing both 1929 and 2019 have in common is tremendous economic inequality to start with. As we try to adhere to stay-at-home rules, the pain is not spread equally. Many people are not able to work from home. To survive, they must put their health at risk. As a result, poorer Americans are at much greater risk. As historian Joseph Stiglitz writes, this disease has targeted those with the poorest health. The safety net is not adequate and is propagating the disease. What role did the longstanding underlying economic inequality play in the Great Depression and now? Professor Kennedy. Well, boy, that, you, you have a knack for asking the big question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, yeah, you, there were deep structural inequalities in this society right up to the eve of the Great Depression. Uh, by some measures, the 1920s exacerbated those, but they were they were deeply embedded in the whole structure of American society and economy going back to the 19th century. Um, and there are, there is a version of that that's been true in the last couple of decades and a deepening trend toward inequality. But I would say by any objective measure, uh, inequality and just downright poverty and immiseration is a lesser problem today and was even before the COVID crisis. Uh, than it was, let's say, to take our benchmark date, 1929. That's not to say it's a trivial problem. I don't want to be misunderstood. But a lot of history has intervened between the 1920s and the 2000s. Yes. And we we live in a different kind of a country. So, for example, um, in the first, let's say, four years of the Depression, from 1929 to 1933, nobody had any really any kind of realistic idea of just what was the magnitude and the velocity of the crisis that was unfolding. Just the data weren't there. Um, Mm. People debated unemployment bills in the Congress, and among the things that impeded the Congress from acting effectively was that nobody could answer the question, how many unemployed people are we talking about? Mm. Uh, so we have a much we have better data today. Whether we use it wisely is another question, but we certainly have the capacity for more effective action. And it took the Hoover administration years to year, literally years to come up with anything that looked like an effective counterpunch to the depression. And in fact, even Franklin Roosevelt, right. uh, whom I whom I hugely admire, 
uh, did well. not did not effectively end the depression until World War II came along. Correct. The yeah. unemployment rate lasted uh, stu- stayed stuck uh, in, on average over the decade of the 30s at about 17 percent. It was 25 percent when he, when Roosevelt took office. So he did make a pretty good dent in that. But nonetheless. People simply had difficulty understanding the nature of what they were facing. They had difficulty summoning the political will to take effective action against it. Now, again, just by way of contrast, look at what's happened both in the 2008-2009 financial crisis and now in this current crisis, that in both cases, both Republican and Democratic administrations, I'm thinking of Bush and Obama in Mm 2008-2009 and Trump now, um, whatever else we might think, at least they bestirred themselves early on and understood that something had to be done, whether it was being done effectively or not is yet another topic. But uh, the, case, the the fact that government had a responsibility, it has a responsibility to find some means to counterpunch to a crisis like this, uh, that, that debate, at least in its gross terms, has long since been settled. Well, that that's reassuring that, that there is a role to play that we have to address this, and certainly getting the correct diagnosis is crucial. Even Hoover wasn't totally devoid of some good ideas, you might say. Uh, but the, the point I want to make is essentially, by way of comparison to the present moment, is that loans to big corporations, the extension of credit to big corporations, was part of the formula for reviving the economy in the 1930s, as it is today. And however we might feel about big corporations, uh-huh. capital B, capital C, uh-huh. they do employ people, <laughs> and it's where people get their daily bread. And because of the peculiarities of our system, it's also where they get their health care, uh-huh. they get their health care paid for. So there is a case to be made for keeping some of those outfits going, even though it leaves a bad taste in our mouth. Right. And I, I do see discussion in the press today, this very day, in fact, about how the administration and people around the administration, Congress and elsewhere, are trying to make distinctions between corporations and firms that do have access to the capital markets and those that don't or have much more difficult access and trying to redirect federal monies to the places where there are no alternatives. So um, Ruth's Chris and uh, Shake Shack and so on, which are big, well-capitalized firms, probably aren't should not be the recipients of these kinds of federal uh, loans. Yeah, I remember when Obama did his bailout of the big banks in 2008, 2009, there was a lot of uh, resistance to that and questioning. But Perhaps it was needed. I mean, we bailed out uh, GM, and uh, pff, they are a lot of people. Yeah, and, and kept a lot of people at work, let's not forget. So it wasn't just GM and its shareholders. It was tens of thousands of employees. Well, I, I wonder about uh, something that Alan Greenspan said, former chair of the Federal Reserve. He referred to the overvaluing of the stock market in the 1990s as irrational exuberance. For 2019, before the shock of COVID-19, as one investment advisor told me, his business was boring. Everything was just going up all the time. Growth (laughs) growth was unprecedented, soaring to a phantasmagorical realm. Profits were largely diverted, or at least somewhat diverted, from productive investment. Those days are over. (laughs) Now, some people compare Trump to Hoover, which, you know, I'm sure you agree is quite unfair to Hoover, as as you were mentioning. Yes, it's unfair to Hoover. Oh, no question. It seems that both Hoover and uh, uh, Trump were not exactly up to the challenge. 
but at least Hoover tried. In the early days of the Depression, Hoover publicized meetings with business leaders derided as no business meetings. They were merely for show. And Trump is, is loath to empower people who know what the heck they're doing. It also seems it's all for show. People are catching on to that. Trump's only measure of good government has been the stock market, as long as the richest among us did well. It seemed that was all accounted, at least to him, but that trajectory did not continue. Such stratospheric heights can be frightening. So coronavirus, could it be blamed entirely for today's economic difficulties or perhaps not enough attention was paid to the needs of working people as things were skyrocketing? There, you know, People are getting sicker and dying in much greater numbers. What about that, uh, Professor Kennedy? Well, I think that you know when the dust has settled from all this and we get back to some semblance of normal, people are going to work in the mornings and so on. So uh, the kinds of questions you're asking are going to be front and center. That is, what, what what exactly are the deficient features of our society and our economy that this crisis has brought to the surface and clarified for us? Um, frankly, it's an open question in my mind whether some of our deepest and most troubling problems that have been on the agenda or should have been on the agenda for the last few decades, like inequality and climate change, uh, whether those are going to be really seriously affected by this. Uh, yeah, I, I just don't know how to answer the question. There, there's another sector or another dimension of our national life that clearly is right in the spotlight on this one, and that's the healthcare system. And if nothing else, this crisis has revealed some serious inadequacies in our healthcare system, most obviously in terms of preparation for pandemics like this, we, we were very poorly prepared compared to some other societies that we don't usually think of our, as our superiors, like Taiwan and Singapore, South Korea. Um, but also, it's surfaced some what should have been more apparent before this time, but wasn't really, uh, at least not to enough people. It surfaced some. Problems with access to healthcare and different access yeah. to healthcare. Yeah. The problems of people who live on the margins of the healthcare system have been among the most seriously affected, not least of all communities of color, which uh, where the virus is taking oh, a particularly no. grisly toll. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a debate that this has brought into sharp focus, and that we're likely to see some initiative, some action on in the next uh, several, let's say, two three years. Yeah, interesting. I mean, uh, of course, Bernie Sanders, who is not the nominee for the party, talked about Medicare for all. Maybe he was, uh, you know, ahead of the game here. Uh, The timing wasn't right. I would think that people depending on their jobs for health care, it's it's different from the rest of the uh, Western industrialized world. I would think perhaps something like that has more legs now than ever. Your thoughts on that? Well, I, I agree with you. Um, our healthcare system, such as it is, is in many ways, maybe in the most central way, a kind of an historical accident or artifact of the way we waged World War II. When we imposed wage and price controls and there was a scramble for labor and to, uh, firms could not bid against one another by raising wages, thanks to uh, wage controls, but they could offer benefits as a way to attract and, uh-huh. and retain workers. Uh-huh. And one of, the, one of the great innovators in that was, was Kaiser Shipbuilding. Uh, Kaiser Corporation built all kinds of Liberty ships and other ships and shipyards, mostly on the West Coast. Uh, Higgins built uh, boats down there in Alabama. 
and others around the country. And because they couldn't compete with wages to, to attract workers, they competed by offering health care. <laughs> and that's how health care got attached to employment uh, in this country. It's uh, a system that exists, at least in that precise form, nowhere else in the world. And we've been stuck with it now for, what, three generations. But it, it is an antiquated, expensive, cumbersome, and unfair system. So when Bernie Sanders asked the question rhetorically, as he did time after time after time, yeah. why is it we're the only advanced industrial society that does not have a more efficient and more universally accessible health care system? The answer is an historical accident, and it's time to get over it. My goodness, I've often wondered, why, why is it tied to, uh, to working? That is so interesting. Learn something new every day, especially from a history professor. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, we are trying to keep democracy alive. Our guest today is a, a professor of history at Stanford, uh, David M. Kennedy. We're talking about, could this be Depression 2.0? And I'm getting a sense of some degree of optimism, which we need these days. Now, certainly in the Great Depression which it wasn't called then, uh, unmarketable crops rotted in the field at a time when many people didn't have enough food. And on our televisions, we've seen the images lately of zucchini and summer squash specifically piled up to rot because there's no market. Can't get it to market. In the wake of COVID-19 pandemic, the dairy industry saw two of its major markets, restaurants and schools, dry up overnight, leading to the surplus of milk nationally. And now the dumpings of millions of pounds of milk that cannot be sold. As you write in Freedom from Fear, the spectacle of dire want in the midst of plenty bred perplexity and anger, end of quote. How was that problem met last time? And now is it time for government to intervene as it did in the 30s, more in the, in the mechanics of the market? Well, this is one of the most, uh, among many surprising elements of the current situation, this is one that surprised me the most. Uh, people in the aggregate aren't eating less, or at least you wouldn't imagine they would be, just because they can't eat out at a restaurant. <laughs> people must be, you think, consuming some baseline constant amount of calories. But apparently that's not the case. And there's plenty of food that can't find its way into consumers' citizens' mouths. When this happened in the early 1930s, and as you say, farmers were plowing crops under running there's instances of running herds of sheep and cattle over yeah. cliffs in the American West because they couldn't uh, even afford to feed them uh, this was thought to be an absolute grotesque distortion of the way this or any other economy was supposed to work but I thought and I don't think I was alone in this that that was one issue that we figured out how to solve yeah. and and this the fact that we're seeing that again today, we're seeing the destruction of a lot of edible stuff. That's a, that's a crime, it seems to me, in its own right. But then there's a second chapter to this, you might say, or a second dimension to it. Does that mean that food that should be in citizens' mouths is just going to waste? Or, in fact, are we getting at least some minimally adequate supply to people anyway? I, I don't know the answer to that. These photos you see of hundreds and hundreds of cars lined up for distribution centers for food baskets and so on. I mean, that, that is a, an automobile version of the bread lines right. you saw yeah. in, uh, in, in the Great Depression, and it is a sight I just never thought we, I couldn't imagine we'd see something like that again. It, uh, history does have a way of surprising us. It's uh, not exactly a science. You can't predict it uh, through rationality. And uh, yeah, the, the, the piling up of food, it's, uh, 
I, I wondered, should the government get involved specifically with the, with the you know, dumping of food and the mechanics of the market there? Well, the short answer is yes, and, and not just government, but NGOs and churches and all kinds of organizations uh, true. probably step up to this one. Um, but as I understand it, and again, my, uh, don't, I don't put a lot of um, credibility on my own understanding of this, but as I dimly understand it, uh, a lot of the problem is just structural, that there's inadequate places to store food that we maybe could take uh, off crops, off the fields and so on. Uh, and get it into the mouths of people that need it, but the storage facilities are inadequate. So it's a, <laughs> you might say it's a kind of food analogy to what's happened in the oil business. <laughs> oil that can't find a place to be stored, so it's just sitting in the ground, and there's food that can't find a place to be stored, so it's going to waste. And I frankly don't know who the uh, uh, Secretary of Agriculture is these days. I have no idea, but I know it's no Henry the Wallace. Sonny, Sonny Perdue. Oh, Oh, great. Uh, that, that boosts confidence. Um, aside also from the history of that area, you write, quote, what struck most observers and mystified them was the eerie docility of the American people, the stoic passivity as the Depression grindstone rolled over them. Now, I've been seriously impressed at the effectiveness of the plutocrats in recent decades of convincing Americans we're powerless, just, and, and people just accept that powerlessness. Well, then and now, what do you think? Well, this was one of the great mysteries of the uh, the early onset years of the Depression. And among the many, many people at the time who observed this was Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, when he was on the campaign trail in 1932, he remarked more than once to one of his most trusted advisors, Rexford Tugwell, oh, remember yes. the brain trust that you mentioned. Wonderful guy. I, I quote this in the book somewhere, but he said he said repeatedly to Tugwell, he said, we are going through the greatest crisis of our institutions since the Civil War, and yet the American people remain so passive. And in essence, he was saying, and I'm paraphrasing him, of course, sure. <clears throat> why, why aren't they flooding the, the streets and the, the plazas and squares of the country with their pitchforks in hand and demanding something? And he was puzzled why that, the Depression did not produce that reaction. Now, later, as the Depression matured, you might say, by the mid-1930s, you get things like sit-down strikes and some very some very dramatic uh, yeah. protests against what things are going on. But in those first few years, you don't see it. Um, mm. My, I, there, There is a study of this, and I've always thought it was a very, very interesting piece of work. It was by a woman social uh, psychologist at the uh, University of Chicago. Her name was Mira Komarovsky. And she had teams of researchers that went on around the country and interviewed families that were uh, where the breadwinner had gone unemployed. And she wrote a book about it, published in 1940, and the, the title of the book is in itself something remarkable. The title is The Unemployed Man and His Family, a reminder of what the demography of the workforce looked like at that time. That's Relatively a- few women worked for wages. Right. So there was one consistent finding that shows up showed up in virtually every single family that she and her team talked to, that the unemployed man, the head of household, the pater familias, uh, confronting his unemployment, uh, what was his psychological reaction was to feel ashamed yes. and guilty and I, I, so people took on personal responsibility for the situation in which they found themselves. Now, 
personal responsibility is a good trait. We try to teach it to our children. You know, it's something we admire. But in a systemic breakdown, like a depression that unemployed, disemployed 13 million people over the course of about 30 to 40 months, uh, clearly it wasn't just a sudden collapse of moral fiber and 13 million individuals that gave us that situation. It was a systemic breakdown, and you think that a systemic breakdown would naturally evoke a systemic response. People would say, we need to change the system somehow or work at it on a systemic level. But that's not what happened. Uh, and it's, it's a reminder of how deep in our national psyche at that time, and I think it hasn't entirely gone away, is this value that uh, Alexis de Tocqueville two centuries ago in his great book, Democracy in America, identified as a distinguishing feature of the whole American mindset worldview. He, he called it individualism, yeah. uh, a word he coined. And he, he distinguished individualism from mere selfishness or egotism. He said those are constants of human nature, but individualism is a uniquely American idea. He was writing this in the 18, 1830s, mind you the uniquely American idea that every individual is the captain of his or her own fate, the master of his or her own destiny, and so on. Tremendously energizing uh, state of mind, to be sure, a lot of positive features to it. But uh, to the extent that that worldview is held uncritically, mm. it means that if you know your fate turns out badly and your destiny turns out to be kind of crummy, you got nobody to blame but yourself, and that's a big impediment to collective action. And it is, I think, some kind of stubbornly persistent feature of our national psychology. And it was particularly evident there in the early 1930s. And I, I can I can testify to this personally in case of my own father, who went unemployed in 1931 and remained unemployed for at least four years, to the best of my ability to determine. And he would not talk to me ever about that phase of his life. He, it was just a subject that he would not go to. And what little I know about it, and this little I learned from my mother, and she described how he had what I guess in modern terms we call a nervous breakdown. And he, after a full year of trying to find out, of trying to find a job, found nothing. Went to Canada, went all over the Western U.S. looking, found nothing. And he, she described it. She shed. He shed his skin like a like a molting snake. He lost a whole layer of skin uh, because he somatized this uh, crisis. But he would not talk about it. It was quite clear that he felt that he had just personally let himself down, let his new bride down, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So I I I grew up with in the in the penumbra, you might say, of that psychological attitude, and uh, Mira Komorowski's findings about what was going on in those various households <laughs> where the man had got unemployed rings very true to me. Yeah, there's still books being written. Uh, just a few years ago, I interviewed the author of a book about, you know, not blaming yourself, that, that there are changes in industry if they lay off people, you know, don't take it out on yourself. And it's been curious how... In America, this part of the West, there's no sense of class, you know, solidarity at all, because people, I think, 
I'm just guessing here, people blame themselves and don't feel like it's, it's a systemic problem. You know, this belief in rugged individualism, uh, it does seem, I think it was Gore Vidal who first said, maybe not, you probably know better than I, that there is, in this country, there's socialism for the richest and rugged individualism for everybody else. <laughs> and, and people, it's, it's interesting that people don't think we have any power, but we are not powerless. They want us to believe we're powerless and it's worked pretty effectively, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, we're not powerless. Interesting story. No, I, I agree. But there, there are further levels of explanation about why we have the political culture that we do. Why, for example, have we never had a, uh, a truly working class party on the model of the social, socialist or social democratic parties or indeed communist parties? in other parts of the Western world, almost all of Europe, for yeah. example. And there, there are a lot of, there, there's several different layers of explanation for that. One is that unlike virtually all the other Western societies, this society established at least some measure of political democracy before the Industrial Revolution happened. So we had basic rudimentary mass democracy, democracy institutions in place and running by the late 18th or very early 19th century. The Industrial Revolution doesn't come to us really until the 1820s or 30s. Mm -hmm. So that the struggle for economic rights in societies where the Industrial Revolution just had a huge walloping impact fused with the struggle for political rights. But here, no, the political rights were already sort of reasonably well established before the economic change came. So oh, we never saw a political party emerge that had the, the joint program of political and economic rights. That's number one. Number two, again, unlike most of the Western European or European societies that uh, got hit by these the twin revolutions of democracy and industrial revolution, uh, we had a working class that was highly variegated in terms of its ethnic and religious and linguistic uh, composition. That's for sure. Uh, so people, the, 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 the Greek fishermen couldn't talk to the Polish Catholic or the, the Ukrainian Jew or the German Lutheran or whatever. And they literally had no language in common and no real deep historical experience in common. They're all Europeans, but that doesn't really mean much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we had great difficulty in this country building a, a, a base of working class solidarity. And then, next trick, translating that into a really sustainable, organized political movement that would take the shape of a party like the British Labor Party or the German Social Democrats or what have you. So there are all kinds of obstacles in the way to the, uh, the assertion of uh, working class solidarity that uh, we just have never really fully overcome. It's funny to me when uh, people on the right talk about the left. Left? What left? <laughs> There's no left in America, not compared to uh, to Europe. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Professor David M. Kennedy. We're talking about could this be a second depression? And he has written a magisterial book about it, uh, Freedom from Fear, The American People in Depression and War, 1929 to 1945. Now, what major difference between that time in the 30s and ours is the roles of the states versus the federal government. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who actually calls himself, as I'm sure you know, the Grim Reaper, suggested just letting the states go bankrupt. Depending on the day, the president sometimes wants states to take responsibility, and now you say the federal government is twice the size of the states all put together. The federal government has the resources uh, to make things happen if there's leadership. 
FDR firmly grasped the levers of power uh, and steadily built confidence. He had to try a whole bunch of things. As a professor, what grade would you give Trump on the dire need for economic leadership at the federal level? I can guess. Well, yeah, I think your guess would probably be right on. <laughs> you, can, you might even delete the word economic from that uh, interrogatory. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, let's 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 re- recollect something about Franklin Roosevelt. His first week in office, the first Sunday evening after his inauguration, oh. he did the first of his thirty or so fireside chats, mm-hmm. and this was in many ways a revolution in the way national, our president, at least national leaders, communicated with their citizens. And why did it work so well? Uh, I go back here to the, the inversion of an old maxim. Uh, there's a very old saying that uh, in order to be, um, you have to hear it to believe it, or in order to be believed, you have to be heard. But there's a there's an inversion of that that is at least as important, and that is in order to be heard, you have to be believed. That people will simply not take give credibility to what you're saying unless they have confidence and trust in you. That's something that Roosevelt had in spades. Oh, and true. He, yeah. he used it, uh, I, I think, I don't mean cynically, but self-consciously, and those fireside chats as a way of reassuring and explaining things to the public at large because he knew he had credibility and people would hear what he was saying. I think our current president simply has, if he, if he ever had that kind of credibility, <laughs> that's, that's an interesting question in its own right, but he certainly uh, devalued it or squandered it in the last several weeks. His appearance on these nightly coronavirus <laughs> briefings, especially when he told us to think seriously about injecting ourselves with Lysol or Clorox. My good Lord. I mean, it seems to, in my ears and eyes at least, he's lost whatever shred of credibility he had left. I can't understand why. I mean, I... I used to be an elective office. I was in the New Hampshire State Senate. We had lots of Republicans then. And, you know, I don't understand why these Republicans don't say, hey, whoa, that's just nuts. We do have the 25th Amendment. But anyway, that's that's not going to happen. And you talk about reassurance. Roosevelt, very reassuring, the, those fireside chats. That's absolutely a big point of, of who he was. I had a uh, an old friend, a Unitarian minister, who said, he said, Bert, there's only two things that motivate people in politics. Fear and reassurance. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't know if Joe Biden can be that reassuring. Maybe. I don't know. But, you know, it, it, and again, we're comparing the 30s to now. Uh, nationalism, back before the 30s, you know, your, your book starts out noting the end of the First World War, which I think really started so much. Nationalism created the horrible calamity of the First World War when the young working class men killed each other by the millions, despite hopes on the left, when there was a left, for international working class solidarity. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. today we see another disturbing rise in far-right nationalism. Duterte in the Philippines, Orban in Hungary, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Alternative for Germany, the National Front in France, Poland, and the United States under Trump, who calls himself a nationalist. When fear takes over, and, you know, the title of your book, Freedom from Fear, is the reason for that, obviously. Much of the populace is often drawn to strongmen. Hitler and Mussolini manipulated fear and hate of the other who could be scapegoated. Well, I doubt that Trump knows the history of the term America first. I would think that 
as you say, if there ever was a time for international cooperation, this is it. How concerned should we be that, that the panic is leading to right-wing nationalism instead of international cooperation? Well, you know, I, I, this, um, I have a dark thought about this, and it goes back to my memory of reading Machiavelli yeah, of course. and the Prince, where he says something to the effect that the Prince might want to be loved, but he must be feared. <laughs> and, and that fear is a much more powerful discipline than any other emotion that political leadership can summon or incite. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, a moment like this is ripe pregnant with the possibility of mobilizing fear on a scale that could open the door to all kinds of mischief. So, yeah, I think we need to be absolutely on the key eve about this. Uh, I, again, I, this is a little bit of a divergence, but maybe not. But I was thinking just the other day of a moment that I bet you can recollect, uh, the Army McCarthy hearing. Oh, yes. And there's a, that famous moment when Joseph Welsh, the attorney for the Army, finally has had enough with McCarthy, and McCarthy's pressing some question about a young attorney, if I remember correctly, his name was Fred Fisher. And uh, yes, Welsh finally yes. says in this avuncular, credible voice, have you no decency, sir? After, at long, at last, long last. Have you no decency? Where is somebody with the, the credibility and and authority and trust in our society today who could say something like that to our current leadership. It's amazing. Why Why hasn't anybody, why hasn't somebody emerged who could say that kind of thing? I don't know. It's just a mystery to me. It's how they, they keep kissing his ring. It's like, I, I don't, I mean, apparently they, you know, they, they do whatever it takes to continue their power and they still apparently believe that to retain their power they have to uh, kiss the ring of the president. It, it amazes me, really. And uh, by the way, at the beginning of this whole uh, stay-at-home stuff, I started reading a lot of books. And the first book I read was Ike and McCarthy. Very interesting time. <laughs> History is fantastic. I, I do love it, I must say. Now, one traditional way to address hardship in America is through charity and philanthropy. Depending on the kindness of strangers, as someone somewhere said, many good deeds are being done to help hungry Americans. But there is a long tradition of antipathy toward welfare recipients. As you note, in uh, Freedom from Fear, Roosevelt forthrightly declared that relief must be extended by government, not as a matter of charity, but as a matter of social duty. Today, one hears the word deserving as a way to decide who is and who is not entitled uh, to economic relief, as we've talked about. In 2017, Trump won a huge tax, re tax relief package for the super-rich, though trickle-down economics has been proven again and again not to work. Many in the top percent still conveniently believe it and that and their employees in Congress serve them rather nicely. The notion of the common good rarely comes up, though I believe it is what many of our founders truly intended. Today, the people most at risk of COVID-19 are, of course, those who have no choice, working people we depend on, who can't work at home. We do need them. FDR took the moment to recognize the sources of the Great Depression included structural deficiencies and institutional inadequacies. Sometimes, as we've been saying, sometimes system needs shocks to wake up from a comfortable slumber. You write that the Depression was both a disaster and an opportunity. What are the chances these deficiencies and inadequacies might be addressed as the result of this shock to the system? Tell us, please, about new opportunities. 
Well, you make me think of a, a distinction I saw somewhere in the last uh, fortnight or so <clears throat> about who who can more or less uh, well shelter at home, shelter in place, and keep working, who cannot. And the distinction that somebody used very colorful was the distinction is between people who shower before going to work or after coming oh, home from work, <laughs> which is a very colorful and concrete way to put it. But yeah, a lot of people are discovering that uh, they can work reasonably well from a remote location, thanks to modern communication technologies. Uh, here at Stanford University, we're doing a lot of teaching online, and it's going reasonably well. I wouldn't say optimally, but it's going pretty well. So we're, we're learning some things about the nature of work. But look, you mentioned Roosevelt saying that uh, uh, helping the indigent or the, or the stricken yeah. was not merely um, not charity. social charity, but a government responsibility. I yes. agree with that. Yeah. However, let's also remember that Roosevelt said repeatedly that he hated the dole. The Social Security unemployment or old age pension system we have is a direct result of Roosevelt's hatred of the dole. He didn't, he didn't want people to be on welfare. He wanted to give them jobs. Mm. So, we're, and, he, and I think he was recognizing something fundamental about human nature and indeed human dignity, that people have dignity when they have meaningful work and they feel kind of crummy about themselves if they're just taking a handout. And there's yes. plenty of evidence for that. Yeah. So, so the key, it seems to me, going forward for this or any other society is not just handing money out, it's finding meaningful work and compensating it properly. So I think a uh, some kind of minimum wage statute nationally that would put our money where our mouth is and recognize the dignity and value of all kinds of work and give people the dignity that comes and the pride that comes from doing work that's properly compensated and recognized, that, that, that's, it seems to me, the path forward. So I get nervous with proposals about universal basic income, it seems to me that's just a glorified version of the dole. Maybe some version of it is going to be in our future, but I think universal dignity of work is a much better way to think about it. Well, that's a good phrase, I must say. And, of course, among the, what, 50 or so candidates we had for president, there was uh, uh, Yang, Andrew Yang, talking about universal basic income. I note he's not the nominee. I think that scared a few people. And one of the great things about Roosevelt was, <laughs> excuse me, public works jobs. We have an aging, uh, you know, system now. The roads and bridges are falling apart. Our electric grid is in great need of work. What about you know? People can't really do it while they, while COVID nineteen is coming out. But in terms of lifting the American economy, there's a lot of work to be done, and there's a lot of resistance to government projects, uh, big government, whatever. But I would think there's a ton of work to do. Things are falling apart. I wonder if, I, I don't know why Democrats don't talk about that particularly. Your thoughts on that? Well, again, I, I share your mystification about that. Uh, we talked earlier in this uh, broadcast about uh, some of the big issues that antedate the COVID-19 crisis, like inequality and climate change. We might have added to that list as we a few minutes ago uh, the deterioration of so much infrastructure in this country. Oh. Uh, transportation, broadband communications, uh, there's a lot of it that is sorely in need of attention. We're still living today, in, in my lifetime, I've been the beneficiary of a lot of in infrastructure investment that was made in the New Deal period, things like the San Francisco Bay Bridge, for example, uh, not to mention later the interstate highway system. Uh, 
Um, Tennessee that's Valley. We had the, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the Bonneville Power Authority out here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, we could go on and on. We, we, for generations, we have benefited from the kinds of investments in infrastructure. Out in the state water project, pardon me, the federal Central Valley project was a federal project here in California. Is another huge one, uh, and we've all been the beneficiaries of that. But for the last, I don't know, four decades or so, we've lacked the political will to make those kinds of investments uh, in that will benefit future generations, even though we're going to pay much of the bill now. So uh, where's the leader who can make the case that we need to do that kind of thing again? Well, there's no lobbyists. I guess there's not a lot of money to be made. I don't know. I mean, it, it's the common good. You know, how, how is that going to pay lobbyists to do their work? But, uh, I mean, in terms of the electrical grid, there's so much work that could be done. Think about, you know, all the uh, photovoltaic work that could be done, building new. Uh, there's just so much demand for it, and it would give people pride in what they do. I think that's just so important, and we need it. I, it's, I hope somebody will talk about that. I, was, I don't even remember Bernie Sanders really talking about that, but uh, it's got to be done. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen, here we are. Enjoying your appreciation of and, and ex- participation in keeping democracy alive. This is not a spectator sport, folks. There's a lot of heavy lifting. Our guest today is uh, uh, David M. Kennedy, professor of history at Stanford. We're talking about, is this, are we headed for a second depression? And I'm, I'm pleased to say it sounds like not really, no. There's some tough times ahead. I'm going to take a few minutes to, to quote, uh, to refer to some of what FDR said. Uh, economist Raymond Moley summarized FDR's approach this way. He believed that government could not only uh, not only could, but should achieve subordination of private interest to collective interests. And when he spoke to the Commonwealth Club in 1932, Roosevelt said, there came a growing feeling that government was conducted for the benefit of a few who thrived unduly at the expense of all. It appeared that if the process of concentration goes on at the same rate, at the end of the century, the 20th century, we shall have all American industry controlled by a dozen corporations and run by perhaps a hundred men. Put plainly, we are steering a steady course toward economic oligarchy if we're not there already. Wow, was that ever prescient, I think. He also addressed the problem of monopoly in 1938. The first truth is that liberty of a democracy is not safe if the people tolerate the growth of private power to itself. Uh, to a point where it becomes stronger than the democratic state itself. That, in its essence, is fascism. Ownership of the government by an individual or by a group or by any other controlling private power. So in this light, Professor Kennedy, the 21st century strikes me as dangerous times, just from this particular uh, vantage point. Who knows if there even will be an election or if he's defeated, if Trump will actually give up the White House. You say you're cautiously optimistic. It I am worried that perhaps, once again, Democrats don't have a clear message. But then again, another quote I learned recently I like quite a bit from Napoleon Bonaparte, never interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) It does seem like Trump is doing that rather effectively. So I I don't know if being not Trump is good enough to elect uh, Biden or the Democratic nominee. A lot of people are lacking in optimism these days. Understandably, we seem a long way off from a real solution to COVID-19. Long way off. Many of us need to hear what you mean when you say, I'm optimistic in the sense, I don't think this is going to be a long-term depressant of economic vitality. It's a sharp shark 
sharp shock right now. My speculation is that with the exception of some obvious sectors like hospitality and travel, other sections are going to be poised for a pretty good snapback to economic health. Uh, what, it, what, tell us about that. Get, lift our spirits, well, I, please. I did, I did say that. That's accurately quoted. Thank you. Uh, but l- let me just dilate on it a bit because uh, do. context is important. So uh, I, I want to underline the word cautiously. Well, I said cautiously. Yes. <laughs> um, but there's one, it seems to me, fairly self-evident matter that distinguishes this crisis from the great crisis of the, of the 1930s, the Great Depression. And it has to do with duration. Um, it's little known fact, but uh, you probably know, but if you just look at one of the most common indexes of economic health and recovery, uh, stock market uh, values, uh, after the crash of 1929, it took 25 years to get back to the 1929 valuations of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, 1954. And the depression, as usually customarily understood, measured by depressed GDP, and massive unemployment lasted 10 or 11 years, 1929, 1940, or even 41. So, and and there were huge, deep uh, damage. There was a lot of huge, deep damage done to the basic production mechanism and financial institutions and so on. It seems to me that even in the worst-case scenario, where it takes us years to come up with a vaccine that lets everybody go back out in public, it's not going to be 10 or 11 years. It could be three or four. Yeah, it that's, could. that's a pretty grim scenario, but it's still not 10 or 11. So, and it seems to me that the, the economy right now is more in a state of being on pause than actually broken the way it was in the 1930s and the way it almost was in 2008, 2009, at least in the financial sector. <clears throat> so there's reason to believe that both with respect to the basic architecture of the economy today and the likely duration of this severe form of economic paralysis and sheltering in place and so on. We're in the presence of a calamity that is lesser in magnitude and duration than that of the 1930s. But that's, as you just said, history is full of surprises. Yeah, and we sure. certainly we certainly don't know the full script of how this particular chapter is going to play out. So... One should not get too cocky about predicting the future. Oh, not not hardly. I did want to ask about Roosevelt's sense of of, of prime the primacy of collective interests of the govern of you know the common good versus the private good. Uh, that that seems to be uh, pretty radical compared to what we have now. But I, I wonder. I mean, I I tend to think that uh, you know right now, I think a lot of government is pretty much at the service of, you know, the, the big corporate interests and, and the lobbyists. But shouldn't it be the, you know, shouldn't the, uh, the, the common good be uh, have, have primacy over private interests? Well, as a matter of principle, I guess I would agree with that, but I would... How you define that, I don't I, know. I, I'm ransacking my, my memory cells here <laughs> to see if I can come up with an example of a Society that was organized on that principle that kept it going for more than I don't know mm. a few months. <laughs> you know, it's just <laughs> it's just human nature. You know, it's a, I, I'm not in the habit of quoting Adam Smith, but he said something back there in the, the Wealth of Nations about it's not from the goodness of heart of the butcher that we get our meat or the baker right. our bread or the brewer our beer. <laughs> 
it's their self-interest that's <laughs> that true. brings them to put that stuff in the market and we pay for it, and that's how the whole thing works. Well, I'm not a free market zealot, believe me, mm-hmm. but there's something fundamental about that observation. Well, it, it, there are people whose uh, observations do kind of last through history because, well, like Machiavelli, he knew what he was talking about, unfortunately. <laughs> got it right. Well, yeah. uh, we, we've talked a bit about uh, his, his book, which I read a long time ago, uh, the, uh, Freedom from Fear. Such a good title. American People in Depression and War, 1929 to 40, 1945, which won the Pulitzer Prize for History in 2000. You got a new book. The American People in World War II, Freedom from Fear, Part 2, which is also part of the Oxford history of the United States. I look forward to reading that. Uh, Thank you so much. And it's good to feel, you know, I I think perhaps one of the most important things, clear things was, it says this economy is on pause. It's not broken. It's on pause. Thank you so much. Let's hope so. Thank you, Bert. I enjoyed talking with you. Likewise. Thank you. So I followed the mob When there was earth to plow Or guns to bear I was always there Right on the job They used to tell me I was building a dream With peace and glory ahead Why should I Be standing in line Just waiting For bread Once I built a railroad Made it run Made it race against time Once I built a railroad Now it's done Brother, can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower To the sun Brick Mortar and lime. Once I built a tower, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once in khaki suits, he will look swell, full of that Yankee doodle dum. Half a million boots went marching through hell, and I was a kid with a drum. Don't you remember, they called me Al, it was Al, Al all the time. Say, don't you remember, I'm your pal, brother, can you spare a dime? Once I built a railroad, I made it run, and I made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Hey, brother, ain't got a dime about you, have you? And once I built a tower, yes, a tower to the sun, of brick, mortar, and lime. Yes, I'm the fella built a tower, and now it's done. Hey, buddy, ain't got a dime about you, have you? Once in khaki suits, he will look swell. Follow that Yankee doodle de dum Half a million boots went marching through hell, and I was a kid with a drum. Say, don't you remember? 
Don't you remember? They called me Al. It was Al. Al all the time. Don't you remember? I'm your pal. Brother, can you spare? Oh! 